your kind and careful attention to our brother Searle. He speaks to us this morning on the subject, Israel has forgotten her maker. My dear brethren and sisters, we have by now become thoroughly acquainted with God's method of teaching, which is a method which involves gentle repetition. In other words, God goes over and over again the essentials of our faith and the essentials of our salvation. But each time there is a repetition, there is new material added. And so it is this morning we shall begin in chapter 7, again by looking at the sins and weaknesses of the children of Israel and how God handled that situation. But again, we shall see that there is new material added. And once more, we shall see ourselves uh, through the words which are spoken. The real burden of chapter 7 is contained in the fact that God would have been their healer, and yet they refused to turn unto him. Verse 1, When I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim was discovered. There is also an indication in that first verse that the first stage in the healing of Israel or the healing of ourselves is the discovery of sin. Israel was blissfully ignorant of the sin that she had committed and of her real isolation from God and of the impending judgments. The warning which comes to us through this first verse is that the very first stage in healing is a discovery of our transgression, is to understand, in fact, where we have gone wrong and how far we are astray and how much we need God to save us. Verse 2, They considered not in their hearts that I remembered all their wickedness. They thought of themselves as being God's chosen people, as indeed the Jews do today, there always has been and is today an arrogance amongst Jewish people who feel themselves to be the people of God and who are not touched by his word and are not humbled by it. They consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. God knows and God remembers. We may so easily forget, we may forget the transgressions of each other, certainly try to forget those of ourselves. But we must not forget that God remembers. I remember all their wickedness. Now their own doings have beset them about, and they are before my face. Verse 13. Woe unto them, for they have fled from me. Destruction unto them, because they have transgressed against me. Though I have redeemed them, yet have they spoken lies against me. You know the drift of these passages all the time. God is there to heal, and all the time they are rebelling, and all the time they are turning away. They have, he says in verse 13, fled from me. Verse 14, they have not cried unto me with their hearts when they howled upon their beds. They assembled themselves for corn and wine, and they rebel against me. You notice that latter part of the verse, they assemble themselves for corn and wine. 
God had said in the second chapter, remember the second stage of his purifying of Israel, that he would take away their corn and their wine. Now it has been done, and yet you will notice they do not turn to God. Instead, they rebel against him. The second stage, that remedial action, is ignored by the Jewish people, and instead of turning to him, they rebel against him. Very much like the prodigal son, who you remember, when he began to be in want, went and joined himself unto a citizen. Did not think at that early stage of going back to his father. The first part of verse 14 also presents to us a very important principle. They have not cried unto me with their heart when they howled upon their beds. Men and women will weep in affliction. But it is only men and women of God who weep unto God in their affliction. The children of Israel have wept bitterly in the horror of the Jewish pogroms over the ages. But they haven't turned to God in their weeping. They haven't used the tribulation which God has put upon them as a means of purification. They haven't seen the hand of God working amongst them. Very lovely psalm, I think, which indicates this point to us. Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputes not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. David speaking, of course, and you'll notice, now he refers to the time when he had sinned with Bathsheba, when he had tried to hide his iniquity. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. But in his affliction, David recognized the hand of God, for he says, day and night, Thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. And David acknowledged his transgression, verse 5. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. He had tried to hide that iniquity for some nine months at least, and failed to do so. He now in his affliction recognizes God's hand, and he confesses his iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Notice how David here gives so full a confession of his weakness that he uses all three words, iniquity, transgression, and sin, each of which is used in that lovely passage, Exodus 34, verse 7, and which describes the totality of the wickedness of man. Iniquity meaning the depravity or guilt of man. Transgression, rebellion, turning away from God, and sin, of course, missing the mark. And here we have David recognizing all these things. He says, I will confess my transgression, my breaking loose, my rebellion unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity 
the depravity or the guilt of my sin, of my having missed the mark. And so David, understanding his own weakness here, and of course recognizing the hand of God in his chastisement, uh, turns to God in prayer. Back into Hosea chapter 7. These people wept and howled upon their beds in their iniquity, in their transgression, in their tribulation. But they did not turn unto God and cry unto him with their hearts. They assembled still for the corn and wine, the blessings which God had previously given, but they did not turn to the God who gave those blessings unto them. Verse 16. They return but not to the Most High. There is a feigned obedience. There is a coming to worship, but it is so false. There is a participation in united events, a kind of fellowship, but it is a family feeling, a social atmosphere, rather than there being uh, a sincerity of worship. They return, but not unto the Most High, they are like a deceitful bow. A deceitful bow is a bow which, of course, misses the mark. A bow which, consequently, produces sin. They return, but not unto the Most High. Instead, they miss the mark. Oh, how searching is that word of exhortation, brethren, sisters. That we can have our name on ecclesial registers. That we can, in fact, do our daily readings. That we can, in fact, be involved in Bible discussion. That we can, in fact, enjoy Bible camps. And yet be missing the very point. Not seeking the fellowship that God himself can give and the life which comes from him. Being quite satisfied with the fellowship we enjoy and the good things we enjoy, but not really thinking about God who gives them. And as we said earlier, the real basis of fellowship is not the social contact we have one with another. The real basis of fellowship is that each of us has fellowship as an individual with God. Well, now, there is in this seventh chapter a further analysis of Israel's sin. And again, we have new points introduced, new points of exhortation which come through for ourselves. So back into chapter 7, the first analysis, the first part of the analysis of Israel's sin is that they are pictured like a heated oven, verses 4 to 7. They are all adulterers, as an oven heated by the baker, who ceases from the raising after he hath kneaded the dough until it be leavened. The picture is of a fire prepared, and it's just waiting to burst forth in fury. All the wood has been put upon it. It's just waiting until the baker stirs that fire into action. And what is he waiting for? He is waiting for the dough to be kneaded, uh, to be leavened. It has to rise. The leaven has to permeate through the bread, and it has to rise. And then when the leaven has risen, the fire is kindled, is stirred into action, and burst forth. Now, here in these verses 4 to 7, we have, I think, the human background to the slaying of the kings. 
Remember from chapter 1, verse 1, how many kings went across the throne in the days of Hosea? Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, and, of course, kings not even mentioned there. Their blood flowed like water. But we're not told there, or even in the, uh, in the kings themselves, of the emotional reaction, of the environment surrounding this situation. But here in verses 4 to 7, our eyes are opened to what really happened. How the people themselves worked themselves up into a fury. There was this pent-up energy within them waiting to be stirred, waiting until the leaven had gone through and worked its wickedness amongst the people. And then it broke forth. And verse 7, you'll notice, they are all hot as an oven. They have devoured their judges. The kings have already been devoured. The priests have already been devoured. And now you'll notice their judges. Their judges are devoured and all their kings are fallen and there is none among them that calleth unto me. And so the people, stage by stage, are eating up all authority, all power, all guidance, all direction. They are breaking out and they are now destroying their kings as well. And notice now in verse 8 how this situation is analysed in a personal, in an individual sense. Although the nation behaved like this, a nation is built up of individuals. Although the nation is described as a heated oven, a fire is built up of individual coals which provide their contribution to the fire. And so we now look at verse 7, which tells us, verse 8, which tells us something about the people, why they had become uh, fallen in this way. Ephraim, he hath mixed himself amongst the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Strangers have devoured his strength, and he knoweth it not. Yea, grey hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth not. I want you to notice five stages in those verses. First of all, Israel was responsible for mixing herself amongst the people. It was not the people who came and mixed themselves amongst Ephraim. And it is never the world which intrudes into our midst. The world doesn't want to know us, doesn't want us. It is usually we ourselves who go and mix ourselves with the world. They don't covet our Bible meetings. They don't covet our Bible study. They don't covet the things that belong to our calling. But we covet what they have. We must be participants in their pleasure. We must vie with them for business. We must seek to be financially sound as they are. We want what they have, and so we mix ourselves amongst the people. And there is the downfall and that is the first stage. And that is what Israel had done. When God would have healed them, 
they turned away from God and they mixed themselves amongst the people. We have a tremendous opportunity. God has already hinted to us what the kingdom of God will be like by showering down upon us countless blessings even now in this time. And yet we are not satisfied with those things. We must take from the world that which it has. And don't forget, what the world has now is all the world will ever have. If your neighbor has a bigger house than you have and more motor cars than you have, has a better yacht or trailer than you have, it doesn't matter. That is all he will ever have. You have been called to become a king, a priest, in God's kingdom. For you, greater things are at stake. Why should you therefore tread in the greatness of your calling for the paltry things which he has, or even covet what he has? So we go back to verse 8. Ephraim, he hath mixed himself, and notice how Hosea spells it out. Ephraim, he hath mixed himself. It is all Ephraim's doing. Nothing to do with the people amongst whom he has mixed at this stage. And the result of this, Ephraim is a cake not turned. Now a cake not turned will be like one of our barbecue steaks, not turned over. Uh, half done. Red and raw on one side and burned on the other. Not like one I had last night. <laughs> In fact, I had two last night to make sure I had a good one. <laughs> what Ephraim is saying, in actual fact, is Ephraim is half-baked. That's an expression that is used in Yorkshire very often, Yorkshire in our country, which is used very often to describe a person who is not mentally complete. Now, Ephraim called to be a kingdom of priests, called to become the head of the nations, never reached that majestic maturity. But like some oak tree which never grows to its full size, but becomes all knotted and gnarled and twisted, so Ephraim was a cake unturned, a cake half-baked. And brethren, that is precisely what happens to us. If we covet what the world has to offer, we will never grow in the truth. We will be half-baked, underdeveloped. We will be useless to the world and useless to the truth. We shall not be fully involved in the world and therefore making a real mark in the world or a real contribution in worldly things, as some people did, like Albert Schweitzer and so on, who really did wonderful things for mankind, we shall not even do that for the world. We shall not do for God either that for which we are called. And so, first of all, the danger is mixing ourselves. The consequence is that we shall be half-baked, we shall be underdone, we shall be underdeveloped. The third stage. Strangers have devoured his strength. The very strangers amongst which Israel mixed herself devoured Israel's strength. And isn't that true to the world? We decide that we're going to make a name for ourselves in business. 
We're going to get on in business. And so what happens? That business eats us up. It devours us. It becomes an obsession. We can think of nothing but our business. We can't sleep at night because of the loss of profits. We must be extending all the time and increasing the pressures on our life. It applies to pleasure, it applies to business, it applies in all that the world has to offer. The world only repays us by increasing the pressures in our lives. When we spend our time with God, we shall have peace. We shall have happiness. We shall have security. And what is more, there is yet to come things far greater than we have yet experienced. The strangers devoured Ephraim's strength. And the tragedy, the tragedy, he knoweth it not. That is the sad thing about this situation, brethren and sisters. Grey hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth it not. The nation of Israel was within 40 years of complete annihilation. And yet they didn't know it. Like an old man whose hairs are becoming grey if they haven't already fallen out. And he will not recognize the fact that he is becoming old. And he will, in fact, still try to play children's games. And he will, in fact, then suffer consequences because of it. As we grow older, we must recognize the fact that we are aging and we cannot do the things that young people can do. And here, the tragedy is, with Israel, they would not recognize the fact that they were in decline, in serious decline. They were about to be exterminated. They knew it not. Will you turn with me to Matthew chapter 25? Very powerful chapter indeed. The context of the chapter is the judgment. Because verse 30 of chapter 24 talks about the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And the end of chapter 25 is a picture of the judgment seat. The first parable revealed in chapter 25 is of the five wise and five foolish virgins. Notice they all go out to meet the bridegroom. Each has a lighted lamp. And therefore we have a picture here, here of brethren and sisters who are aware of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and who are going out with a lighted lamp to meet him. But of five of those wise people, you will note in verse 12, the bridegroom says, I know you not. The tragedy of the situation is that those five people thought they were wise virgins with lamps alight and were going to meet the bridegroom. They did not know that they were not known by him. And the same emphasis comes through each of these particular parables. When we come to the end, which gives a picture of the judgment seat, we'll find that the people who are condemned as not having given him a drink of water or clothed him when he was naked say, Lord, when did we see you 
hungry or thirsty? When did we see you without clothes and didn't provide clothes and covering for you? They did not know that they hadn't done the things for which they're now being condemned. Back into Hosea chapter 7. Because they had mixed themselves amongst the people, they were underdeveloped. Because they had mixed themselves amongst the people, the people had devoured their strength. And the tragedy is they didn't even recognize the situation. They knew it not. And the tragedy, brethren and sisters, is that we do not recognize when we are going astray. We will recognize it in somebody else. No, we always say, Brother so-and-so ought to give up his business. He's getting, he's getting beyond it. It's taking over his life. He ought to stop. But I'm all right. I can cope. I'm all right. I can still control myself. I still know when I've had enough and when to stop. But you know, we don't. And the only way in which we can control our own individual lives is through the reality of the Word of God is through constant meditation upon the living word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, and will divide the thoughts and intents of the heart. It will tell us. The trouble is we don't believe it, and we don't accept it. We see what is a reality, or we think it is a reality in the world, and we go for it, and we ignore all the time what God has said to us. Verse 11. Ephraim also is like a silly dove without heart. Contrast a silly dove with a homing pigeon. You can release a homing pigeon and in no time at all that pigeon has got its bearings and it's going home. It may even have to go across the channel. It will go home. But you release a dove and it will flutter about like a butterfly. It will go from tree to tree, from branch to branch. And here is that situation in verse 11. Ephraim is like a silly dove. It doesn't know its way back to God. It won't go back to God. It is fluttering about, enjoying the sunshine and the soft, gentle breezes. Rather like a butterfly which also enjoys and is driven by the breezes, but has no purpose, as does a bee which goes out, and it goes out to work and to gather honey. But here the situation is a silly dove, which in fact doesn't know its way back home, doesn't know its way back to its master. They call to Egypt instead, and they go to Assyria. Interesting to notice as a little aside that Jonah also means dove. And for a long time, until God really taught him the lesson, he didn't know which way he was going. He also went in the wrong direction and had to be brought back by God, but of course he responded, whereas Israel didn't. Now the amazing thing in all this is that although Ephraim is so contrary, so willfully uh, committing sin against him, God is still seeking to save, and we look at verse 12, when they shall go, I will spread my net upon them. 
I will bring them down as the fowls of heaven. I will chastise them as their congregation have heard. Remember the stages of chastisement we looked at in chapter 2. Well, here is another situation where God's net is not a net of judgment. It's not a net of catching a fowl here that it might be destroyed. But it is a net to restrict the activities of the children of Israel, to bring them down in their folly, that they might then be chastised, that they might then turn back to him. The hand of God is at work. There are many indications of this kind of thing in Scripture. Um, we have the same sort of thing in the life of Job, where he describes the hand of God as being a net around his life. He is hedged in by God that he can't get out. And ultimately, he has learned a lesson, and he accepts that lesson. And now into chapter 8. Chapter 8 shows us, I think, very clearly, Israel's weakness without God. What it means to be a cake half-turned, to be underdeveloped. What it means to be isolated from God. This comes out in chapter 8, and furthermore, other sins are exposed. And uh, being devoured by strangers also is explained a little more in this chapter. Verse 3. Israel hath cast off the thing that is good. The enemy shall pursue him. You see how we've got the same lessons coming out, and this is God's method of teaching by gentle repetition. Ephraim hath mixed himself amongst the people, and therefore is devoured by the strangers. Here we are told, Israel hath cast off the thing that is good, Therefore the enemy shall pursue him. The word of God or the Lord is a strong tower to those who believe and trust in him. But go outside of that tower and the enemy will pursue. There is a kind of safety once we are inside the tower with God. Verse 2. Israel shall cry unto me, my God, we know thee. Notice the deception, which we picked up a little earlier in chapter 7. My God, we know thee. In actual fact, verse 3 says, they've cast off the thing that is good. They're claiming to know God and to be his people. They're devouring his blessing. Side 2 do not really know him. They haven't come to term with the terms with the truth. See, the lesson all the time which Hosea is driving through to us, that we can be on the fringe of ecclesial activities and think we're in the middle. We can see all the activity going on in Christadelphian life and think we are part of it. In actual fact, we are sitting on the perimeter just watching it happen. We're infused by the things that we see, such as the slides which we saw last night. These things being done in the world and people are being given the life of truth. We're infused by it. And we think of ourselves as being part of it. But have we spoken to our next door neighbour? 
Have you opened your Bible with your next-door neighbor and spoken with him or with her about the things of the truth? Are we really bound up with the things of the truth or are we just spectators looking at what is happening within? Are we like Israel saying, my God, we know thee? And do we really understand the principles of salvation? What it is that God requires of us? And are we trying to put those things into practice? Verse 4, they have set up kings, but not by me. They have made princes, and I knew it not. Of their silver and their gold have they made them idols, that they may be cut off. One minute they are saying, verse 2, my God, we know thee. And the next minute they are bowing down to the idols they have made for themselves. Isn't that a picture of human nature? That we will come together to worship and say, God, we know thee, and we break bread and drink wine to show that we have fellowship with Christ and the very next moment we are back in the world and we are associated with the things of the world. We are not separate people. That is what Hosea is telling us here this morning through this message. We must not fool ourselves and pretend that we are in the midst of activity when in actual fact we are on the fringe and our feet are well and truly planted in the world and we are seeking what the world has to offer. Setting up our own kings, our own idols, that we might worship them out of our own silver and out of our own gold. Verse 11. Because Ephraim hath made many altars to sin, altars shall become sin unto him. When we leave God, we leave his way. And we make for ourselves our own way. When we stop serving God and we turn into the world, we turn into a different way of life and we create our own altars. We choose for ourselves which way we shall tread. And in treading that way, there is our destruction. Israel were not aware of the fact that the very altars they were making were altars to sin and altars to destruction. Now look at verse 12. I have written to him the great things of my law, but they were counted as a strange thing. I want you to think for a moment of the law as it was given unto the children of Israel. It was holy, it was just, it was good. The law was not just a series of do's and don'ts. The law was a way of life. It was something to be lived. If they lived in accordance with the pattern of the law of Moses, they were healthy, they were happy, they were blessed in their farms, in their storehouses, in their families. It was a way of life. It wasn't irksome. It was a way of life. But if they failed to see that it was a way of life, then the laws became irksome. For example, when God said they were not to make a garment of mixed materials, if they wanted to make, to be economical in their use of materials, if they wanted to make money and to be economical in what they used, then it became irksome. They couldn't mix silk and wool. They couldn't mix cotton and, cloth and, and wool together in making a garment. 
They had to go the whole way and use all wool or all cotton or all silk. They couldn't mix them. And same with sowing their seed in the field. They could not sow diverse kinds. It had to be one kind of seed only in a field. Demonstrating all the time that we can't mix. We must not mix with the world. There must be this principle of separation. But more than that, look for a moment at the law of the Sabbath. Humanly speaking, a man would say to himself, if I want to make my farm successful, then I've got to work long hours. I've got, in fact, to work seven days a week. I've got to make my machinery work seven days a week to make it pay for itself. I shall never pay off the mortgage for the tractor if I don't make it work. I've got to make my servants work seven days a week. And so, humanly speaking, in order to make profit, one has to work long hours and has to make one's equipment and one's servants also work long hours. But what did God say to the people? He said, I want you to observe one day of rest, and during that day of rest, think of me. Remember that I delivered you from the land of Egypt on that day. Remember that I am the one who gives to you your blessings on that day. That you are a separate people. Remember those things on that day. And those people who kept the Sabbath, that is, who did not work on the Sabbath, found that they had greater blessings in their stores, in their barns, than those who worked on the Sabbath. Because the law was to them a way of life with blessing. That if they kept the law, God would shower blessings upon them. And so the man who thought he was being smart by working on the Sabbath day, and perhaps tilling more ground, who thought he was going to get more goods from the ground, was in fact worse off. And this works today. You know, we are not commanded to keep a Sabbath today. There is nowhere in Scripture which says that we must not work on the seventh day. But it is a very good God-given principle that we observe at least one day of rest and meditation, that we give over one day to thinking of God and his way of life. And those who do in this way devote their lives, not just the Sunday, but their lives to God in this way, will find that there are rich blessings which come to him. Verse 13 of chapter 8. They sacrifice flesh for their sacrifices of mine offerings. We have already just touched upon this. It means in actual fact that when they slew an animal, they were nothing more nor less than butchers who were slaying animals. There was no spirit, no heart in the offering of sacrifices. They weren't thinking all the time that here God is accepting the blood of this animal upon the altar to make an atonement for my sins. They weren't thinking of their own transgressions and of what God was doing for them. They were just sacrificing flesh. No spirit, no life, no heart. They were like whited sepulchres, outside looking lovely, white and clean, but inside full of dead men's bones. And unhappily, that is going to become the nature of ecclesial life as Christ remains away. We shall become more and more like whited sepulchres, 
more and more filled within with dead man's, men's bones. Less and less activity from the heart of the ecclesia and more and more passengers. That is going to be the pattern and it is our responsibility to get into the heart of our ecclesia and to work with them. Make sure that our sacrifices are indeed sacrifices which mean something, that there is spirit, that there is understanding, that there is heart. Now look at verse 14. Israel hath forgotten his maker. Picture all the way through. Israel hath forgotten his maker, and what does he do? He builds temples, and Judah multiplies fenced cities. And that, again, is precisely what mankind does. If we break away from God, if we lose our sincerity, we lose our concentration upon serving God, we will automatically move into the world and we will build our own temples, we will produce our own fenced cities. You see, man is a productive animal. He must be doing something. And if we are not doing God's service, we shall serve ourselves. If we are not building up the house of the Lord, we shall be building up houses for ourselves, erecting our own temples. Romans chapter 1 shows how when they turned away from God, they made their own idols and they worshipped those idols they had made, and so God gave them over. And as we lessen our interest in the word of God, in Bible study and God's service, we shall automatically find ourselves drifting into the world where we shall become more and more involved. You know that little sketch we had in self-appraisal the other day? A great deal more truth in that uh, than we perhaps will understand initially. But the man who was conducting the appraisal was trying to show that he wanted to get out of his employees so much more. He must be giving more of his time and his attention. And of course the counsellors will tell us, you can be successful. And they will fool you into buying a bigger house and getting a bigger car and getting a bigger mortgage. That you'll have to work the harder to pay for it. That you might in working harder make bigger profits for them. And all the time your life in the truth is going to shrink. They have forgotten their maker and they have built fenced cities. Now, chapter 9, and we have just time, I think, to look briefly at chapter 9. Because we have a picture here now of corrupt Israel perishing in exile. They haven't yet gone into exile, but here in this chapter is a picture of what is going to happen to them in exile. Remember we said yesterday, one of the stages of God's teaching of people is to make his way clearly known, to tell them precisely what is going to happen if they go the wrong way. Well, here, in this chapter, we have that situation. And interwoven through the darkness of Israel's gloom, we have the picture of the final judgments of God and of his kingdom. Verse 1. Rejoice not, O Israel, for joy as other people, for thou hast gone a whoring from thy God, thou hast loved the reward upon every corn floor. Let's just pick up for a moment the word rejoicing. 
Make a note of Deuteronomy 16, verses 13 to 15, which shows that rejoicing was built in to the law of God. Humanly speaking, we do not easily rejoice. We tend to be more pessimistic. We tend to grumble more and see the worst of things. We tend not to rejoice and be happy. Now in Deuteronomy, built into the law of God, there is this command that they were to rejoice at the time of harvest, and not only so, that rejoicing was to bubble over, to spill over to their servants, their men servants and their maid servants, and all their slaves were also to rejoice with them. So rejoicing was a part of life, so far as God was concerned, under the law of Moses. You notice now here in verse 1, Israel is told not to rejoice as other people because they have gone a whoring from their God and they have loved the reward upon every corn floor. The second principle that comes out of this verse is firstly rejoicing and secondly that of responsibility. Because Israel had received the law of God and knew precisely what God required of them, greater are going to be his judgments upon them because of that. There is no question about it, brethren and sisters, that knowledge brings responsibility. The early chapters of the um, Epistle of Paul to the Romans, chapter 2, chapter 4, 5, 6 and 7, all show that knowledge brings responsibility and we cannot escape the responsibility we have once we have received the truth. It isn't a matter of choosing whether we shall serve God or not. Once we have received the truth, we are responsible and God's judgment stands before us if we do not obey. And that is the situation which faces Israel. They are here being told what will happen to them if they don't repent and if they don't follow him. Verse 3. They shall not dwell in the Lord's land. You notice the expression? It isn't their land at all. It's God's land. They should have been citizens of Zion. But they haven't become citizens of Zion. Like Judas who hanged himself and those very telling words went to his own place. He'd been out of place amongst the disciples all the time. And in his death, he went to his own place. And here we find these people are to be removed out of the Lord's land. In Psalm 87, we have a glorious little picture of Zion and of those who are born into Zion. The Lord loveth the gates of Zion more than all that dwell in the tents of Jacob. I will mention, he says, in verse 4 of Rahab and Babylon, 
To them that know me, behold, Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia, this man was born there. In other words, men are born and become citizens of the place in which they are born and are very proud of it. But verse 5 says, And of Zion it shall be said, This and that man was born in her, and the highest himself shall establish her. In other words, we either are citizens of our mother country, or we are citizens of Zion. We can't be both. And once again, we have the same lesson. I can't be a citizen of England and a citizen of Canada. I can only have one passport. I belong to one country. And we cannot belong to God and belong to the world. And so we have this situation here that the time has come that the Lord will show that these were not, in fact, citizens of Zion. They had not spent themselves in doing the right things. Instead, they have become citizens of Egypt, citizens of Assyria, and they have been devoured by those very places. Verses 4 to 6 show that the loss of temporal things spoken of in chapter 2 will come and they will no more be able to offer their wine offerings, verse 4. They will instead have the bread of mourners. Verse 5 says, What will ye do in the solemn day, in the day of the feast of the Lord? And when they found themselves in captivity as slaves in the land of another, they were no more able to keep their Sabbaths. They were no more able to offer their sacrifices because they did not possess animals which could be sacrificed. The time had come when it was too late. And that situation is one which has very, very searching words of exhortation for us. Verse 7, The days of visitation are come, the days of recompense are come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. And now we have added to the list the prophets. We've had the kings. We've had the judges. We've had the priests. And now we have the prophets. Verse 7. The days of visitation are come. The days of recompense are come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is mad for the multitude of thine iniquity and the great hatred. Those who should be prophesying, speaking the word of the Lord, are now speaking forth folly. And we are in the last 40 years, I'm sure, of our existence before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm sure also that there will be much folly spoken from our platforms. We shall have more philosophy, we shall have more humor and more wit. We shall have less and less of the word of God. Already we find that our lectures are becoming philosophical. We tend to talk about famines and distress in the world as if we ourselves could put those things right. Already we are forgetting that there is a gospel of salvation that God and he alone can put these things right. And as Hosea tells us, he is our healer. The prophet is a fool and the spiritual man is mad because of the multitude of thine iniquity.
we will produce that which we deserve and we shall have the kind of food for which we have clamoured. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. You remember Gibeah? You remember that man who was passing through with his concubine? The man who sought asylum or rest in Gibeah and we read no man gave unto him and we know the ultimate consequence we know what happened to his concubine and we know what happened to Benjamin and we know how the tribe of Benjamin was almost completely exterminated by the power of, of God because of their wickedness they have deeply corrupted themselves as in the day of Gibeah and they are about to receive the judgments of God just as stringently as did Benjamin at that time who were almost exterminated completely. It would be only a remnant which would be saved. I have found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripened the fig tree at the first time. But they went to Baal Peor. In other words, God had seen Israel as if Israel had been a vine in the wilderness. And he'd taken that vine and planted it in a very fruitful hill. Isaiah chapter 5 talks about that. But although God had chosen and selected and isolated that vine and done wonderful things for it, instead of being glad that God had done this, they went to Baal Peor they separated themselves unto that shame. Notice the word again, separated. They're not staying with God and having the world at the same time. They are separating themselves unto the world. You can't have both. You can't serve God and mammon, says the Lord Jesus Christ. It is one or the other. They went to Baal Peor. What happened at Baal Peor? Well, there they received the counsel of Balaam. Balaam who led Israel to sin. And how did he do it? Balaam wanted money that Balak had offered to him. But God would not give unto him a prophecy that he might go and prophesy against Israel. Instead he gave a prophecy which said Israel must dwell alone, must be separate. But what did Balaam do? His cunning mind got to work and he thought, Ah, God has said Israel must dwell alone. If only I can get Israel to intermingle with the countries round about, God will destroy them. And I'll get my money. And he cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, and he caused there to be mixed marriages. You read the account through very carefully and all the references to Balaam in the New Testament as well, and you will see that his counsel is one where he causes mixed marriages to occur, the intermingling of the children of God with the world, and because of this, the wrath of God comes upon them. And there is a dreadful finality in all this. For verses 11 to verse 17 show that Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird from the birth and from the womb before the conception. In other words, the child isn't even born. But not to talk about miscarrying wombs and dry breasts. All their wickedness is in Gilgal, the place 
As we saw yesterday, where God's name had been honored and God's name had been revealed amongst them. But verse 16 says, Ephraim is smitten, their root is dried up, they shall bear no fruit. A dreadful finality for the ten kingdom tribe. Smitten, dried up, no fruit. There was to be no future at all for the ten tribe kingdom. My God will cast them away. They did not hearken unto him, and they shall be wanderers among the nations.